Oh, Father, we thank you for laughter and we thank you for the fact that we can have joy even in the midst of rough times. Father, I thank you that our joy is found in Christ and not in this world. I thank you, Father, that our life is secure in you and not in even the physical health of our bodies. I thank you, Father, that you have seen fit to reveal even to sinners like us your word. And we can come to your word this morning and actually hear your voice through the text. And I thank you that your word is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing even to the, the bone and marrow, the soul and spirit, Father. You know just how to penetrate our hearts, even our, our sinful hearts. And so, Father, I pray this morning that your word would do its work. I thank you for what we're about to read, Father. We all need to hear it, and some of us might especially need to hear it, because we do live in times where there's plenty of suffering to go around. We do live in times where a lot of fear is being spread. Father, I pray that you might receive the glory. That your word might go forth and that your people might be changed. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, beloved, hopefully, um, we're, it's a Lord's Supper Sunday, so hopefully you have been preparing your heart for several days to take the bread and the cup, which are symbolic of the righteous life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And we will be taking that in a few minutes, but we're going to take just a few more minutes this morning to prepare our hearts through His Word. So I invite you to join me in John 14. On Lord's Supper Sundays, we've been going through what is commonly known as the Upper Room Discourse. It is Jesus and his disciples, the twelve, in an upper room of a residence. It is hours before he will be arrested and comically tried and then eventually nailed to a cross. The past three years, three plus years, had been the most consequential in the history of creation. God veiled in human flesh, the Son of God, Jesus, had engaged in what we refer to as His earthly ministry. He had gone around, He had specifically called 12 men, He had commanded them, you know, follow me, and they did. They become known as the 12 in Scripture, in, in the Gospels and Acts. They spent more time with Jesus than anyone else. They were with Him almost all of the time. For three or so years, they witnessed him create food out of just a little bit, create food for thousands. They witnessed him heal the sick. They witnessed him cleanse lepers. They even witnessed him raise the dead. Some of them witnessed him being transfigured into the form we will see Jesus in one day the transfiguration. But most of all, they heard Jesus teach. And they heard Jesus teach. And they heard Jesus teach. They heard His words. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They heard the parables. They even had many of the parables explained to them, whereas others did not. Just that week, earlier in the week that we're looking at here, the, uh, this is the night before Jesus' death here that we're looking at today, earlier that week some of them had been given some details about what the end of the age will be like, what to look for, what, it'll, what will happen. 
But now they were in this room with Jesus for the Passover. And the way He was talking, it would be for the last time. Jesus Himself being the real Passover Lamb. You know, while the Passover was something for Israel to to be able to look back on and say, God rescued us, God delivered our nation from Egypt, God God delivered us across the Red Sea, while they were able to look back at the Passover and say that God spared our firstborn. Now, the Passover was also something to look forward to when God's firstborn would be the substitute for all of Israel's. And... So it was a symbol of Jesus Himself. Jesus was there and He was the the fulfillment of the Passover. As we have sung this morning, Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? He was that perfect Passover Lamb to take away the sin of the world. And He would do that in just hours from what we're about to read. In this room, Jesus, the fulfillment of the Passover, was transforming it into what we are going to observe today, the Lord's Supper. It's the upper room then where all this happens. And it's the upper room in which we are given the most extended and most detailed teaching of Jesus to His disciples. There are other long passages of Scripture where Jesus is teaching. All of Matthew 5-7 through is the Sermon on the Mount. But here we've got five chapters, John 13 to John 17. And He's not in the upper room for all of those five chapters, but all of this is an extended section where He is, the disciples are there to hear His voice. And these are His last words to them in a sense. And as we enter into to chapter 14, several things have already happened. We've looked at some of these and during our past Lord's Supper Sundays. Judas has left. He has gone. Uh, the, the, the other disciples are kind of like, why, why did he leave? They, they've got their own ideas about that. But Jesus knows why, and it's to betray him. It was after Jesus, or rather after Judas walked out the door that Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. Why did he say that? Because now the events that would lead to his crucifixion, now the events that would ultimately culminate with his resurrection were coming to pass. Now was the appointed hour that Jesus had been talking about throughout His ministry. Jesus also told His disciples, love one another. If you are my disciples, you will love one another. Because you are my disciples, you will love one another. I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But the world is going to know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Then you've got Peter, you know. The apostle with the foot in his mouth, you know, I, you're not, I, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus goes, really? You know, before the rooster crows, three times you're going to deny me. Three times. So as chapter 13 comes to an end and chapter 14 begins, the mood is one of bitter sadness. It, it's a very somber scene. What Jesus is saying hurts to hear. And now one of them has even been predicted to deny Him. That's after the one left who's actually going to betray Him. There's nothing happy about this yet. So, is this how it's... You know, put yourself in, the, in, the, in the, the sandals of one of the twelve. Is this how it's going to be? He's just going to leave? Well, Jesus always knows what His people need in any given situation. Philippians 4.19 tells us, 
that my God will supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. And that was true then. It was true. It's true today. It was true before God became a man. It was true when, when this happened. So what does he need? What do, what do the disciples need that Jesus gives them? Well, you might have a subtitle in your Bible before chapter 14 that says something like the one in mine. Jesus comforts his disciples. They needed comfort. He gave them comfort. You hear all this, you're distressed. You, you need to be comforted. They would especially need to be comforted a few hours from now. They would need something to cling to after all they were about to see and hear. And, and it's the same comfort that we, 2,000 years removed from the events themselves, it's the same comfort we could use today and tomorrow and the next day as we what are we, what are we doing we try day in and day out to what to be disciples and hopefully we want to, if we're going to be disciples we want to try to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ in a sinful world so let's read John 14 enough introduction just 3 verses though John 14 Jesus is speaking do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that's, that's as far as we're going to get in that text today. Yeah, but when someone dies, beloved, one of the great comforts we have is one another. We've got family, we've got friends. Sometimes we even have acquaintances that sympathize with our loss. You know, God has placed, you know, we were... Reading from Romans 16 earlier, I was talking about how Christianity is a, a communal faith in the sense that we need each other. God has called us to be together. God has placed in our lives different people at different times and in different ways who can help us and give us comfort. And, and especially you know, whenever we go through a trial, but especially when we experience the loss of death. And Jesus was about to die, and Jesus knew what was about to happen to him, and he, and he said by way of preparing them to comfort one another, love one another, they would need to love one another more than ever, love one another just as I have loved you, he said. But that said, there's only so much that can do. You know, There's only so much that I can do for you. And there's only so much that you can do for me. God did not create me in such a way, for instance, that I can save you. And God didn't create me in such a way that you can save me. We are to love one another without question, but ultimately it's not to one another we must look for our ultimate comfort. Ultimately, we must have someone else in whom we place our trust. So Jesus gives us what we need here. What does he say first? He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Consider, if you look at your Bible, the last thing you see before verse, chapter 14 begins is that, G, that Peter's going to deny him three times. If you're Peter, you are distressed about what you've just heard. 
Do not let your heart be troubled is the next thing out of Jesus' mouth. Literally, stop your heart from being troubled. Stop your heart from being troubled. You know, he's not saying not to start being troubled because he knows we already are. He knew his disciples already were. You know, they were a basket full of hurt. They, they, they had all kinds of emotions swirling around in them. Never forget, beloved, who this is, though. This is God. You know, I saw a survey this week. It was produced by Lifeway Research. Lifeway is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they, commi- they, they were commissioned to do this, this, uh, this poll of self-identified evangelicals. And it is absolutely alarming, the results of, 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 of this. There are so many people who identify themselves with Christian, as Christians who don't agree with what I'm about to say, but is unequivocally true in Scripture. That Jesus is man and Jesus is God and He is always that at the same time. Jesus is man. Jesus is God. And if you don't believe those things are equally true, then you don't believe in the Jesus as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. It's so important, beloved, to know that. If he's not a man, he can't identify with us in our, in our sin. If he's not God, he can't save us from our sin. Both have to be true. And both are of Jesus. And since he's God, that means he's omniscient. Omniscient's a big word for it. All-knowing. All knowledge is his and in his cognizance always. And as it relates to the people Jesus encountered throughout His earthly ministry, what does John 2 say about that? John 2.25 says, He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. And Jesus didn't have to be told anything about anybody. He knew what was in man. And not just a superficial kind of knowledge either. You know, Jesus just doesn't know about you. That word for new in Greek, it, it's, it speaks to a deep, intimate kind of knowledge. Jesus knows you inside and out. He knew men inside and out. He knew His disciples inside and out. So He knew that they were all kinds of emotional. Some may be angry, fearful, probably, definitely sad. Definitely hurting because they did really love Jesus. As many times as they say something, and you, if we read the Bible, you know, we're next time we're in the Lord's Supper, God willing, we'll, we'll look at something that uh, Thomas says, and then Philip's going to say something a few verses later, and you'll wonder, have you been with me all this time? That's what, actually the kind of thing that Jesus says back to them. But they really did love him. They loved him so much. He he loved them to the end. He knew what was in them. He really was going somewhere. He really was leaving. So he was saying, stop letting your heart be troubled. But how? You face trials. You, you know, it's been said, I've said it probably from this pulpit before, that you are either about to go into a storm or you're in a storm or you're going out of a storm. And sometimes there are more than one storms at one time. You're hurting. You're either 
You've been hurting, or you are hurting, or you will hurt, and it will happen over and over again throughout your earthly life because this world is filled with sin, which means this world is filled with the effects of sin, and the wages of sin is death, and and beyond death there is all kinds of betrayal, there is slander, there is hate, there is malice, there's all kinds of sins we see in Scripture, and so hurt is inevitable. So how do we stop letting our heart be troubled? What does God, what does Jesus say to his disciples who were about to experience this in a very acute way? Believe in God. Believe in God. Or as I understand this, and you may have a footnote in your Bible that says, or you believe in God. I believe that this is an indicative. He's saying, you, you you all, you believe in God. Stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Remember, these were... Jewish men who before they'd ever heard of Jesus believed in and worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To various degrees and various ways they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who had rescued His people from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. The God who had established His throne under the line of David. The God who had saved Israel again and again. Who, who sent His prophets. Who brought His people back from exile in Babylon. And back to the land that He promised centuries before. They believed in the God of Israel. The God Jeremiah wrote about in Lamentations 30, or 3 verses 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses. Indeed, never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The God they worshipped is the your of that verse. It was He who was faithful to them. They believed in Him. So Jesus is saying, stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God. And by the way, Jeremiah wrote that while lamenting the loss of Judah that was being carried off into exile 600 plus years before Christ. And now the disciples were experiencing an even more profound loss because sitting before them, reclining before them, was God in human flesh right there with them, but He was leaving them. But they were to believe in God. Stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe, so believe. Believe in God. Remember God. Remember God's loving kindnesses. Remember God's compassions. They never fail. Great is His faithfulness. You know, beloved, we often forget that. (laughs) You believe in God. Where is God in our trials? He's there. We just don't acknowledge Him. We allow the world to become bigger than God. We allow our circumstances to become bigger than our faith. And rather, we allow our circumstances to crowd out what is real. And what is real is great as His faithfulness. He's always there. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, you believe in God... Believe also in me. That is, in the same way you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believe also in me. And by the way, if that's not a claim to deity by Jesus, I don't know what is. There are many today 
In fact, I could point out that survey. In fact, I may do a series on that survey one of these days. But um, I was so shaken by it. Not that it's nothing I already knew about our culture and, and the state of the church, but just to see the numbers was alarming. But, beloved, the point I want to make is, if that's not a claim to deity, I don't know what is. You know, there are many who say that Jesus doesn't claim actually to, to he doesn't say the words, I am God. He doesn't say, ego emi theos, I am God in Greek. <laughs> and, and he doesn't say those actual words. So that means he, he didn't really believe he was God. That's just baloney. He's saying, believe in God. You believe in God, believe also in me. The same way you believe in the God of Abraham, you believe also in me. And by the way, there's so much more of that in the New Testament. In the same way you believed in the God that said, you shall have no other gods before me, believe also in me. No other gods before God, and yet believe also in me the same way. He's declaring Himself to be God. Yahweh in the flesh. So believe in Him. He's saying to His distressed disciples right before Him, Here I am. I am that I am. You've believed in God whom you can't see all this time. Now don't be troubled because I am God and I am right here in front of your eyes. And though I'm leaving, you still believe in me. Jesus had been telling them, I'm going all this time. He'd also been saying, the Son of Man will return. I read to you from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 a minute ago. How about 24 and the verses after that? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. So while Jesus would be away... Great is His faithfulness. He will come back. So wait patiently for Him. Today, you know, we look at the world around us. We look at the news and there's rarely good news in the news. The Lord knows how discouraged I tend to get from time to time turning on the news for one minute. That's why I get most of my news where I can read it and then click off of it really quickly. I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. He's saying, don't be troubled. Stop being troubled. Wait for the salvation of the Lord. The bottom line here, beloved, is that Jesus is the cure for the anguished heart. You having trouble this morning? Jesus is the cure for what's going on in your heart. Jesus is the comfort for any troubled soul. Jesus isn't saying... You'll never have problems. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than your problems. Jesus isn't saying your soul will never be troubled. Jesus is saying, I am the way out of that trouble. Jesus, you know, just ask Paul. I get so infuriated when I watch television, religious television, so many prosperity teachers that say, if you just have enough faith, you'll never have problems. If you just have enough faith, you'll never get sick. If you just have enough faith, then God's going to bless you materially. Show me where that worked for the Apostle Paul. Show me where that worked for the Apostle Peter. You know, Paul's letters, he wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. They are full of concern. They are full of anguish. Read 2 Corinthians.
But what was his hope? The grace of God through faith. Paul believed in God. Paul believed also in Jesus. The point is, beloved, is that just as Jesus wanted his disciples to stop being troubled but keep believing in him today, he doesn't want any of those who believe in him to be shaken. He doesn't want you to be shaken from your faith, but to keep believing, to continuously believe. Literally, the Greek is saying, continuously believe in me. Because true comfort can be found only in Jesus Christ. We can't place our hope in our 401ks, in our retirement package. We can't place our hope in our savings accounts. We can't place our hope in our, even our families. We can't place our hope in our education. We can't place our hope in feeling secure. We can't place our hope in America. We can't place our hope in, in whoever's elected president. You know, I, I saw another poll, not a religious poll, but a, a, you know, one, you know, there's all kinds of polls during election season. And I don't know how accurate this is, but it said 57% of Americans are voting for whoever they're voting for primarily out of fear of the other candidate. I think the numbers are probably actually higher than that on that, on that one. Just a personal opinion there. Beloved, as an aside, I encourage you, however you are going to vote, not to do so based on fear. But believing in God, believing also in Jesus. Because God is sovereign and Jesus is king. Stop letting your heart be troubled. What does Peter say? 1 Peter 1.8 And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter was writing that to Christians who were, they were either beginning to endure persecution or they were about to be. The Roman Empire was really coming down on Christianity around the time Peter wrote this letter. And he's saying, you hope in Christ. That's where joy inexpressible and full of glory is found. And why? Verse 2. In my Father's house... Which, by the way, another clear claim to deity, by the way. Jesus is claiming the God of Abraham as his father. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. So he's leaving. He's going to die on the cross. And yes, he's going to rise from the dead again. But then he'll be ascending back to the father. You know, Later this chapter and more in the upper room discourse, he'll tell his disciples about the spirit he is sending. But at this point... In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, I'm preparing in a temple which will never be destroyed, unlike the one in Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed in, in AD 70. I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place for each one who believes in God and believes also in me, for all who trust in me. So it was... The, it was to the disciples' benefit that he was going because that's what he was going to be doing. Do you realize, beloved, that, that right now Jesus not being before us is for our benefit? Yeah, he'll actually tell his disciples flat out later on in, this, in this, this, this passage, it's for your good that I'm going because I'm going to send the Helper. And by the way, while the Helper, while the Holy Spirit is with you, I'm preparing this place for you. Why? So that Romans 8.18 can be true. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed to us. 
So Jesus was leaving, but that's what he's saying to the eleven in that room. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Stop letting your heart be troubled. I'm coming back. You know, it's stunning how often we don't believe that. Or rather, how often we live as though we don't believe that. You know, so many of us, and I can be as guilty of this as anybody, shame on us for living like we believe something happened two millennia ago, but that what Jesus said is going to still happen. You know, we don't live as though that's true so much of the time. For the believer, eternal reward for the one who doesn't believe eternal punishment. And we don't live like that's the case. We, we just, we're going about our daily lives like 2016 is all there is. But Jesus promised, I will come again and receive you to myself. You will be with me forever. Wherever I am, you will be wherever you are. That's where I will be. And that's the promise for us today too. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. The, the point being, there is hope in the words of Jesus because of what the words of Jesus say about Him and what the words of Jesus say about what He's doing, still doing for us. Not just done, He's still doing it. The work of atonement is finished. We're going to proclaim the Lord's death in just a few minutes. It is finished, but today He's getting the place ready for all who believe in Him. As Jesus is coming in John 14 to the end of His first coming, He's pointing His disciples to the dawn of His second coming. So stop letting your heart be troubled. He's given us the Lord's Supper. In that room where He said these words, He gave them the Lord's Supper which we are to proclaim His death, first coming, until He comes, second coming. The Lord's Supper is the link between His comings. This morning, everyone who has repented of their sins and everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ and in obedience to the Word of God has been baptized by immersion and is a good standing member of a local Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, we invite you to join us this morning as we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you have not come to Christ, if this morning you hear the words of the Lord from John 14 and you say in your heart that I'm dead in my sins and I need Jesus then I invite you to make your need for Christ public. I invite you to repent and come to Jesus by faith. When we pause to pray in a moment, you are invited to, to come and make your repentance known. And if you are believing, if this morning you are going to take the supper, then now is the time for one last moment of self-examination because the Lord would rather you not take the supper than take the supper in an unworthy manner. Let me repeat that. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord would rather you not take this supper than to take, take it in an unworthy manner. Don't come in an unworthy manner. Don't make a mockery of the cross. Do what you must to have a clean conscience before God before you take the bread and the cup.
as we bow, let us take a few moments to examine ourselves privately and do what needs to be done before God before we publicly take the supper together.